Last time we were together, we considered an area of Christology that might be uh, underlooked a little bit, and that is how does Jesus Christ, one person, merit for an entire race of mankind salvation? And uh, we saw because Jesus Christ is the God-man. Now we're going to go a little bit more into um, what goes into Christ's sacrifice and what goes into what goes into Christ and Him meriting us salvation. We want to look at this afternoon the psychology of Jesus Christ, the psychology of Jesus Christ. What was going on in the mind of Christ with regard to His sufferings? With regard to His sufferings, we love to talk about, and the church has um, done a great job. Uh, more or less, of talking about the sufferings of Jesus Christ, what He's done for us. And usually what we say what Christ has done for us, He's lived for us, and He has died for us. He rose for us as well. And we think, well, when Christ dies, He dies just like any other man. Uh, his, his soul is separated from His body. But we're going to answer the question this afternoon is what's it necessary for Christ to have such sorrow and pain? Was it necessary for Christ uh, to undergo and assume these things? Was Christ's sorrow and pain the most extreme sorrow and pain that one could ever feel? So, in other words, in the same pain that, one, that, that we undergo um, when we die, did Christ feel that pain as well? Um... We want to consider, then, the emotions and the sorrows um, and the tears of Jesus Christ. In the 4th century, the great church father, Gregor of Nazianzus, says, That which is not taken up is not healed. Uh, That which is not taken up is not healed. And we have this insight from Gregory um, that that is there to combat the heresy of Apollinarianism which essentially says when God took on flesh, He didn't take on a human mind. So what you have is you have a human person, a human body, human faculties, but you don't have a human mind. You have a divine mind. But in saying that, though, in saying that if if God only assumes a a human body and not a human mind, then uh, did He actually assume all of what it means to be man? Is He truly a human if He doesn't have a human mind? Well, Gregory then says this. He says, if only Adam fell, or rather, if only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may also be half. But if the whole of his human nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten, and so be saved as a whole. Let them not then begrudge us. And this is one of the great... I mean, if Gregory of Nazianzus had Twitter, like this would get a million retweets. Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation or close the Savior only with bones and nerves and a portrait of humanity. In other words, let's not, let's not give to Christ a humanity that has just really bones and nerves that looks like a human being, but it's not really a human. In order for us to be saved, saints, in order for the whole of us to be saved. You know, when Christ saves you, it's not just merely sin. Yes, it is He saves you from under the condemnation of sin, but also He's healing you, you yourself, who you are. Because when Adam fell, 
all of who he is, his mind, his will, his passions got distorted. They all now are under the realm and the dominion of darkness. The church fathers then, and what the Holy Scriptures teach us, saints, is that it wasn't enough for the eternal Son to assume merely a human body, but our Lord had to take on all of what it means for us to be us in order for us to be redeemed, essentially. He had to assume all of what it means to be human in order for humans to be saved. And we see how close, how in solidarity Christ is with us various times in the Bible. How close is Christ to you, saint? How human is God? Luke 19.41 And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. John 11.33 And when he saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. Luke 22 and he withdrew from uh, from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, and he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. In John 11.35, Jesus wept. How deep into the marrow of our bone did Christ, the eternal Son, become? How human is God? Well, He's human enough for Him to cry. He's actually human enough for us to undergo something that we probably never undergo, and that is sweat of blood coming from our foreheads. These verses speak of the man that was prophesied in Isaiah 53-3, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus Christ is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That doesn't mean that he was all the time sorrowful. Of course not. But what it means is, how close of proximity did Christ come to us? That Christ co-assumed, he took on the very thing that we tend to hide from the world, and that is our sorrows. He assumed the very thing that we don't want to be, and that is in grief. None of us want to be in grieving. None of us want to be sorrowful. Um, But Christ did. Jesus Christ then assumed human emotions and passions. This afternoon, saints, we want to consider Christ's passions in general, the intensity of Christ's passions, and number three, and lastly, the necessity of Christ's passions. Number one, Christ's passions in general. What are passions? What are passions? What does it mean to have passions? We tend to think to be passionate about something is to be, is to be very intensely for something. Say, I'm passionate for basketball. So I have this intense desire for basketball. When a passion is not necessarily an intensity of something, but passions are emotions are really a motion that we undergo. Simply put. Passions are emotion. They're, passions themselves are neutral. It's, a, it's an emotion that we undergo due to some exterior object. Due to some exterior object. Now, when I, mention, when I say motion, I don't mean that we move from space to f- space. So just like in a few moments, I'm going to move from this location to that location to administer the Lord's Supper. 
But the motion I'm speaking of is the motion within the soul. The motion within you. The motion within you. This motion, then, is something that we all, under, all undergo. Um, if I was to put a video on the screen of those cute little kittens that um, so desperately want to be um, uh, adopted, uh, then many of, you, many of you might go from the, um, from the passion or the motion of neutral to the passion or motion of sad. You know, um, many of you undergo the motion of happiness to sadness. Many of you undergo the motion of frightened to sorrowful. All of you do that. In just a few seconds, you can do that. You have the power and the ability to cry or to get frightened or get the sorrowful. In other words, saints, we go from a change in our state. And this change in our state is brought about by an external object. I see something, I perceive it, and based upon what I see in my senses, I'm either happy, I'm either sad, I'm either sorrowful, I'm either frightened. There's a, there's a movement, there's always movement within us. There's always a motion of, within our soul. Let's call it passion. Those are emotions. Okay? It is these passions that our Christ, our Savior, takes on in His humanity. Our Christ takes on sorrow and pain. Our Christ takes on being fearful and frightened. Our Christ assumes what it means to have emotions and passions. And saints, we ought to stop here and say that this is an extreme condescension from our God. An extreme condescension from our God. Meaning, look how low our God became. In fact, theologians will even say that the Eternal Son did not assume passions, but He co-assumed them. Meaning that He didn't have to take them on. But in order to live in complete likeness with us, in complete solidarity with you, brother and sister, where you can truly say that that is my elder brother, that he really is bone of my bone, that the confessions of faith are true, that he is very man of very man, that he assumed, he co-assumed human passions. Jesus Christ, because he is the eternal son, he could have prevented sufferings in his body. Many times you see in the Gospels, do you not? Where it seems when a large group of people are coming at him, about to kill him, and he just disappears. Out of nowhere. And what what that's saying, saints, um, not only is that in order to take Christ's life, Christ must will his life to be taken. That's number one. No one could just come up to Christ and shoot him out of nowhere. But unless Christ willed for someone to come up to him and shoot him, then no one will come up to him and shoot him. He had, light, he had control over himself. But also, what we see in Scripture, saints, is that Christ underwent a such lowly condition in order for him to be truly, truly our Savior. Now, saints, there are some differences in Christ's humanity in relation to sufferings and sorrow when compared to Adam in the garden and to us. Um, and I sent a very long text to many men <laughs> on this point um, because this had me in a doozy. Christ's humanity, with respect to suffering and sorrow and pain, differed from Adam's in, uh, humanity in the Garden of Eden. So if you're saying, is there a difference between Adam's humanity and Christ's humanity with respect to sorrow and pain? 
Well, yes, there is a difference. Now, think of this question, saints, and this is what had me in a doozy. Um, could Adam in the Garden of Eden, in the garden before he fell, could he experience pain and sorrow? Could Adam experience in the garden before he fell pain and sorrow? Could he undergo tears? Could he undergo fear in the garden? Well, many of you are smarter than me because many of you are saying no. (laughs) The answer, though, is yes and no. The answer is yes and no. Adam always had the potential to undergo pain and sorrow. It's not as if pain and sorrow was absent from him being exercised. He could have. But because of his right standing before God, that is his righteous constitution, his constant enjoyment of God, but also in the context that he was in, in, in the place that he was in, prior to his sin, Adam was never in the position to experience pain, sorrow, and tears. Again, because of where he was at, in addition to who he was, he was never in the position to undergo tears and sorrow. Consider this insight from Herman Bobbing. Human nature in Christ was much more highly developed than was Adam's. For in the state of integrity, speaking of Adam here, there was simply no occasion for many emotions such as anger, sadness, pity, compassion, and so on. In other words, had pre-fall Adam um, been placed in an environment like ours, if he was placed in a wilderness of thorns and thistles, if he was taken out of the Garden of Eden, then he would be in a position to experience pain and sorrow. But because he was in the Garden of Eden, he was not in the position to experience pain and sorrow. Now here's the contrast to Christ. But Christ did not just and this is, I love this, did not just visit us with the inner movements of God's mercy, but rather in his human nature, he opened up for us the abounding world of the mind and the heart that did not and could not yet exist in Adam. In other words, Christ assumes a human nature, but not just a generic human nature. We think that, you know, when Christ assumes a human nature, it's the most pristine human nature, which in many ways it is because it's grace. But in many ways it's not, because he assumes what Adam brought upon the human race. He assumes the defects of the fall of Adam. What's a defect of the fall of Adam? Pain and sorrow. Adam in the garden never experienced it. Christ now experiences it. Christ truly takes on what it means to be man, but not just what it means to be man. He co-assumes what it means to be fallen man. The defects of our humanity, Jesus Christ assumes. What Adam brought upon us, Jesus says, I will take on. I will take on these emotions. Again, sorrow and pain are emotions that Adam and Eve did not know prior to sin. Not because they weren't there, but they never experienced them. But after they sin, what happens? Adam has fear. He hides from God. What happens? In pain, Eve, you will bear children. The things that were hidden from them, 
the moment they fell, before God even pronounced pain and sorrow, they're already experiencing it. Christ then assumes such emotions that sin brought to humanity. <laughs> Again, what such lowly condition our God became for us? Such lowly condition. Which means, saints, that Christ wasn't just a mere stoic. You know, we tend to say, well, He set His face like a flint. But He had to do that. Not that His face was always like that. That His face was always stoned and He had no emotion. No, Christ assumes the very thing that Adam brought upon humanity. We also see that Christ, ha- we had, uh, Christ with these emotions and pa- uh, of pain and sorrow, they differ from ours as well. So although they're like ours, they're also not like ours. And here's the difference. We have passions. Jesus Christ had what's called pro-passions. Pro-passions. And what that simply means is this, simply put. When Jesus Christ experienced pain, sorrow, and hatred... And you guys will all know this well because I experienced it. His emotions never overrode reason and judgment. Let me give you an example. You're driving. You're listening to some nice Christian music. Boom! Someone cuts you off. Cuts you off really badly to where you're almost in an accident. You went from a state of being happy to angry. Almost to the point where your hatred and anger, it overrides reason. Reason will tell you, don't follow that person. Don't get close. He might want to get out, you know, and you might, you might uh, reciprocate that same energy. You might want to meet at the parking lot and, you know, engage in something that you shouldn't engage in. Reason to tell you, keep driving. Let it go. How many times though, does your passions override what reason is telling you? Many times. Even with regards to food. Reason is telling you, don't eat that chocolate chip cookie. You're going to get full and throw up. Well, what is your sense telling you? I need to eat it. I have to eat it. Your sense is then, at many times, like myself, it overrides reason and says, and, and it becomes the controller of your reason. When the reason is to control your emotions and your passions. Christ, though, never had this dilemma. And this is big for our salvation, saints, because if, if Christ for one moment allowed his emotions to override reason, there goes your salvation. Simply put. I mean, that's a practical implication of it. But his emotions never underwood reason, as one theologian says, the sufferings of Christ's soul were indeed troubles of the soul. He did trouble, he, he did experience fear and pain. But as sacred scripture repeatedly calls them, there were, uh, there were not perplexities or disturbances. They didn't just, they didn't shake him. Your passions, many times, they shake you. Your emotions, they shake you. To where you do something you shouldn't do. You sin when you shouldn't sin. Some of us, not all of us. Or as one theologian says, these passions in Christ are not directed to illicit things, 
nor do they function in a way that is opposed to the judgment of reason. Nor do they hinder his reason from always doing what's right. Simply put, saints, when Christ sees an evil, it is an evil. And his reason is telling him that is evil. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not, he's not arbitrary in things that he's looking at and saying, well, everyone says that that's okay, but I think it's wrong. Therefore, it's wrong. No, reason is always dictating and telling Christ. If something is right, it's right, and it's right. If something is wrong, it's wrong, and it's wrong. And the things that are wrong, when he feels hatred, such as flipping over the tables, when they're exchanging money, that is a good thing. Because they're doing something which they ought not to be doing. But also, um, in many ways in Christ, when he perceives something, he doesn't allow what he's feeling to override what's right and true. What Christ teaches us, saints, in many ways, is what what it means to be authentically, truly a Christian. One of the practical implications of this is, this is how you're supposed to act in life. Everything is to be guided, first and foremost, by God's word. And your reason is to always be in line with God's word. And what you feel is to stay there. Never allow your sense, appetites, your passions, your desires to start to creep up and override what's good, which will allow you to not do something or do something that you should and ought not to be doing. Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. At this very moment, Christ is sensing fear. He does not want to die. Is it a bad thing for Jesus Christ to say, Lord, if you're willing, let this cup pass for me? No, it's not a bad thing. Mind you, he is the only one in history that is innocent. It's a right thing for Jesus Christ to pray to his Father, I don't want to do this. That's what his emotions are telling him. What does reason tell him, though? Not my will. Yours be done. What he's feeling stays where it's at. He does not allow it to creep into his mind and override reason. It's natural for man to shrink from death. And that's what Christ is feeling. However, Jesus Christ's will was never subject to his emotions. And saints, let me tell you, never let your reason and your will be subject to your emotions. Never let your reason and your will ever be subject to your emotions. For our will and reason is always to be subject to God. And even our passions, our passions, they're always to be in line with what God says. This is why we have such an outcry such an, an outcry when we see babies being murdered. It's a good thing for you to hate that. It's a good thing for you to be stirred up in your emotions and to weep over babies being murdered. That's a good thing. <clears throat> we see this throughout the life of Christ. One verse, John 5, five three. I can do nothing myself. Or I can myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Let's now consider the the intensity of Christ's passions. Another question, saints, to consider. Was the suffering of our Lord, both physically and psychologically, 
the greatest of all suffering. Was the sufferings of our Lord, both physically and psychologically, both materially with the body and also mentally, was it the greatest that one could suffer? Was Christ's sufferings the most extreme? Was it the most extreme? The answer, saints, is yes. The answer is yes. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 26, 38, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Again, Isaiah 53, 3 prophesies of one who will be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But saints, we already know this, right? That Jesus Christ assumed human passions. He assumed grief and sorrow. He went through pain in his life. But was his pain and sorrow the most extreme pain? I mean, he died on the cross. Has there been anyone in history that have maybe died in a more extreme way? Maybe his, maybe if someone came next to him and maybe they were actually, they had some sort of mechanism that were stretching his arms and pulling his legs. Maybe someone in history was beaten more. With that person in compared to Christ, can we say that that person suffered more than Christ? Because he was beaten more. No. Of course not. How is it, saints, that the martyrs can go to their death singing psalms? How is it that the martyrs can go to their death praising God? How is it that St. Irenaeus, on his way to Rome to be martyred, write a letter back home and saying, do not send people to help me? How is it? Were they more stronger than Christ? No. The reason is they were dying for different causes. I mean, doesn't the Bible say, lastly, that Christ and pain, in relation to pain and sorrow, is just like ours? Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He's tempted like me. So then how is his temptation... How is his pain, how is his sorrow more extreme than mine? Well, saints, when we read this verse, for although we can sympathize with Christ's weaknesses, we cannot, or rather, since Christ can sympathize with our weaknesses, we cannot sympathize with his weaknesses. Christ can sympathize with your weakness, saints, for sure. But you cannot sympathize. Your mind cannot handle Christ and what he went through. You could say, I could have took the nails. Well, maybe you could have. Maybe you could have hung there. Because there were two beside him that did. So obviously, we had the potential to have nails put on our wrists and to do that. But much more deeper than that, saints, it's not the physical pain that's causing him the most turmoil. It's what's happening in his mind. <clears throat> Christ's sufferings, both physically and psychologically, was the highest one one could ever suffer. Even considering it from the nails and him laying on the cross. Even that is the most extreme suffering. Because that is the greatest act of evil. Someone crucified the Lord of glory. That is the greatest evil one could ever do. 
greater than killing a baby at the moment of conception. It's a greater, more infinite evil that they did on Golgotha's Hill than what millions of Americans do every single day. It's a greater evil. Because this one is holy. This one is innocent. This one is without sin. Now, how is this possible then? What's the reason? Jesus Christ, since He was this, uh, the eternal Son of God, we must remember that Jesus Christ is not one that's awaiting salvation. He's not in hopes of, save, uh, of, of doing this all right, and then He's ending up just like us, awaiting salvation, but rather He's the Savior of the world. First and foremost, He's the one that has come to redeem us of our sins. And as the Savior of the world, in His human mind, He's been given the fullness of grace to know God and enjoy God in its highest possible degree. Theologians call this the, the beatific vision. What that means is Christ as man, in the very heights of His mind, He did not have to read the Scriptures like we do and then say, Oh, I am the Savior of the world. He didn't have to read the Scripture and say, Oh, there is a God. But no, from the moment of conception, He knew God. From the moment of conception, He knew His mission. I mean, think of Jesus at age 12, or whatever age He was. At the temple, asking questions. What does He tell His mother and father? Do you not know him about my father's business? He knows something about his mission. Even at a very young age, he knows something about who he is. The scriptures testify of this. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And here it is here. Full of grace and truth. Now let me, let me, let me do a little... Um, a breakdown here. What does it mean then? If the eternal Son assumes a human nature, in that human nature, He's full of grace and truth. What does it mean to be full of truth? Does it mean that He knows everything about mathematics? That truth? No. What it means is He knows God. John 17.3 And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What's eternal life? Knowing God. What is truth? God Himself. Well, if Jesus Christ then has the fullness of truth, then obviously He knows God as far as a creature can know God. Jesus Christ had what we're waiting for. Pastor Antonio said, when that final trumpet sounds, or what a glorious day that's going to be, our minds will be filled with the knowledge of God, not through a glass darkly. But we will know God the way God has prescribed for us to know Him. And what I'm saying is, Jesus Christ does not await for that. But at the very moment of conception and throughout His life, He knew God. He knew His mission. He knew the blueprints. He knew what He was going to do. He knew what He had to do. He knows God to His highest possible degree that a human can know God. And saints, this full knowledge of God, and here it is here, here's the connection. This full knowledge of God is the backdrop, is the reason why Christ's suffering was the most extreme. Because someone 
For someone who knows God the most will grieve over sin the most. Someone who knows God the most will grieve over sin the most. What causes Christ so much pain and sorrow? It's the sins of mankind. Yes, what's causing him sorrow is him dying. He does not want to die, but ultimately, what's causing him sorrow? Saints, what causes you? If you're going through something with someone, what causes you the most agony at night? Even, it is the psychological pain that you go through. That's what keeps you up at night. It's the mental torment of whatever happened. But what causes Christ the most pain is the sins of humanity. And since Christ had the beatific vision, since he knew God fully, then he had a profound understanding of sin. We know of sin, do we not? But do we know the depth of sin? We don't. We don't know the depth of sin. We say that it's an infinite offense to God. But do we really even know what that means? Christ knew what that means. Christ knows sin better than we know sin. Again, Christ knows sin better than we know sin. Not because He's experienced sin. Thereby, He's a sinner. You know, because in us, in order for us to know something, we've got to study it, experience it. But no, Christ knows sin better than we do. Not because He's experienced sin, but because He knows God fully. And thereby, He knows the infinite offense sin is to God better than anyone else. Why is that? He knows the holiness of God better than anyone. He knows the holiness of God. And in relation to the light that He has in His mind, He sees darkness for how dark it really is. We know sin is darkness, for sure. But do we know how dark it is? Just as we would feel anger when one offended the person whom we love the most, if someone offended my mother, I would feel very, very angry. And I would be grieved because she is not worth someone to offend her. She's not, she's not worth someone to come up to her and offend her. She's of greater value. Just like my brothers and even you saints, you are of greater value. I would be very grieved and, and sorrowful just for you that you have to go through that. Well, think about our Christ then. How grieved is he knowing that we have offended one who is not, who is of infinite value? <laughs> Who's of infinite value? Jesus Christ is grieved and feels sorrow over the sins of his people because we have offended God the most. God, it's like Christ is saying in his mind, you, you really sinned against the one who gives you life, breath, and all things? Like that one? The one who, the one who gave to you all of this? Life itself? Yes, we've offended that God. And in the knowledge of God and who He is, He sees sin for what it really is. We see this example, saints. Luke 19, 41, 42. 
And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, "What would what that you, even you, had known on this day that things may, that made uh, that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes." Matthew twenty three gives us greater detail. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her uh, a bird under the wings and you were not willing. Now, I'm not going to get into Christ is wanting them to say what He can say of them. We'll, we'll save that. But just think of, you have God as man looking at His creation that is rebelled against Him. But it's not merely just those whom He's desiring to save but can save. But it's more so the sins of humanity. That's causing him to grieve the most. The most sorrow and pain in Christ's soul is that the people rejected the Son of God. The people have rejected their only Messiah, their only way of salvation. Saints, think of ourselves. Think of ourselves. When we grieve and are pained when our loved ones, when we see our loved ones rejecting the gospel of Christ, we are deeply moved, are we not? It, it tortures us at night knowing that my best friend, my brother, my sister, my child, are, they're rejecting Jesus Christ. And says the reason why we grieve so much and the reason why Christ grieves so much is not because we, He can't save them, because He can save them. But the reason why we grieve so much because of over our over people, our loved ones rejecting the gospel. And the reason why Christ is grieving so much over the sins of Jerusalem is because He knows and we know what those who reject the gospel of Christ are truly missing. We know what they're truly missing. It's not because they're going to go to hell, which, yes... But because you're missing your ultimate blessedness and reward. You're missing God. You're missing the ultimate and true good of life. Well, saints, if we grieve because we know that our loved ones are missing out on the greatest good, which is God, then how much more, how much more does Jesus Christ grieve? He knows better than anyone what sinners are losing by not accepting Him. We know just a slight... We don't even know what heaven really is. What it will be. We don't even know what the beatific vision is and how it will be. We really don't even know if what our deification, us being like God, ultimately will be. Christ knows it better than anyone. And based off of what He knows and what they're rejecting, He grieves over Jerusalem. He grieves over Lazarus' tomb and what sin has done to fallen humanity. Christ grieves. One theologian puts it this way, Christ bears interiorly the darkness and His anguish over the sins of each one of us. But it is crucial to note that He can only bear this darkness fully because of His simultaneous light by which He knows God. In other words, it's exactly because of Christ's supreme knowledge of God that allows him to see sin the way it's meant to be seen. Christ sees sin the way it's meant to be seen. And saints, we should learn from this as well. 
that although Christ lived in a world full of sin, Christ never was comfortable with sin. Christ never was comfortable with sin. Yes, he associated with himself with sinners, but he wasn't comfortable with their sin. As it was said this morning, when's the last time we grieved over our loved ones? When's the last time we actually contemplated the sins of not just our loved ones, but of the world? People who we don't know that are dying in their sins. Christ is able to go to a high mountain, look over Jerusalem, and see sin. And sees what the people are missing. Lastly, and much shortly, was it necessary for Christ to have sorrow and pain? Was it necessary for him to cry, essentially? Um, I said a few weeks ago that when we consider the tears of Christ, we must remember that we are saved by the tears of Christ because the tears of Christ are the tears of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, how is, how is this possible? How are we saved by the tears of Christ? How is it necessary for Christ to have sorrow and pain? Meaning, if Christ didn't have sorrow and pain, could he still be a sufficient Savior for us? If he didn't cry, could he still be a sufficient Savior for us? Well, saints, we will touch on this much more next Sunday afternoon. But to just give you a little bit of um, a piece of the cake, let's consider a sacrifice. And again, we'll talk about this more next week, but what God desires most in a sacrifice is not merely the outward demonstration, not merely just a, a spotless lamb, but what he desires most is the inward posture, heart posture. That's what he wants the most. Clearly, as is stated in Psalm 51, 16 or 17, 17. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That is what God desires the most. When two are at a dispute, let's say I offended you. What do you want most from me to know that I'm truly sorrowful? You don't want a gift per se. You don't want a car, although you'll take it. You don't want food. I'm sure you'll take it. But you want to know that I'm truly remorseful over what I've done. That's what you want. You want not just, I'm sorry, but you want, brother, let me give you the ways in which I'm sorry. That's what you want. You want to know if that person has a broken and contrite heart. So the sacrifices that God delights in are ones of a proper heart posture that visibly displays to God they're actually sorry for what they have done. Well, we're caught in the dilemma here, right? Because Christ has never sinned. So how can he have a broken heart? Because he himself never offended God. Short answer, because he's our federal head. He represents us. And as representing us, he also represents our heart to God. He represents our heart posture to God. He represents how badly we have offended God. In many ways, in and through Christ, we are saying, Father, forgive me. Just as Christ, when he's crying out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? It's not just merely Christ crying out. It's the head 
on the behalf of the body, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ is so cut to the heart on the behalf of the sins of his people. That's what grieves him the most. That's what brings him the most sorrow. That my people have sinned against you. And God, you are so worthy of justice. Here I am, on the behalf of my people. I present all of my being to you. So Christ didn't just suffer in his body. He suffered in his soul. And he presented that soul and drove that soul and walked that soul up Golgotha's hill and presented a complete and perfect sacrifice. Yes, a spotless and sensitive and perfect body that's never sinned. But more so than that, a broken heart on the behalf of His people. How do we know this? Last text, Hebrews 5-7. In the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the One able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His piety. Jesus Christ then offers up tears Yes, on the behalf of himself, God save me from this, but also on the behalf of others. Lord, save us. Save us. When we think of the sacrifice and we think of the sorrow of Christ, we must not think of the sorrow of Christ in the way in which we do. But again, saints, what's the great comfort in this? That Christ heals us from the inside out. He saves us from the inside out. How do we know this? Because one day, we won't have to undergo sorrow and pain. Because one day, we will finally experience that filial adoption, that sonship adoption that we have been engrafted and incorporated in because of our Savior. Why? Because He wept for you. It's not merely just Jerusalem saints. It's for all of us. Jesus Christ cried over your sins. Because it was your sin, my sin, that brought him to the cross. And in doing so, because of his intense pain, and because of his sorrow over sin, the Father was able to look at his son's sacrifice as a pleasing aroma and resurrect him to new life which will be our resurrection as well. Next time we're together, saints, we talked about the sorrow of Christ. Next time we're together in the afternoon, we're going to talk about the love of Christ. Because we're not just saved by the sorrow of Christ and the tears of Christ. We're also saved by something better. Something that God actually desires more. And that is the love of Christ. So we're going to see how much Christ loves us. Let's pray.